Well, you can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11 this morning, but I will begin reading at verse 1 to set the context. Uh, The sermon is titled, Mortifying the Old Man, Putting to Death the Old Man, uh, in verses 5 through 11. So begin reading at verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. For there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for the benefits that Christ has purchased for your people. Thank you for the spirit who has been poured out upon your people. Thank you for the indwelling of the spirit. Thank you that he is that agent of new creation uh, who works in us, who gives us all the benefits that Christ has purchased. And we are thankful that you do sanctify us by your word and by your spirit because of Christ Jesus and what he has done for us. And so we ask in our Christian life and our Christian growth that you would help us to mortify the deeds of the flesh and help us to uh, uh, live in a manner consistent with your word, to grow unto the image of Christ our Lord. Thank you that you give us means to help us with this. May you give us zeal for this. May you help us to see that it is a war that we engage in day by day, hour by hour. And may we uh, uh, engage in this war knowing that we are forgiven, knowing that we are redeemed, knowing that we are raised in Christ Jesus and have the Holy Spirit And may we wage this war knowing that we have uh, conquered in Christ Jesus. And so we pray that that this would give us help and encouragement as we live in the tension of the two ages, as we struggle with remaining sin and remaining corruption. Help us to know your strength. Help us to know your forgiveness. Help us to know your power and help us to put on the full armor of God as we do so. So we pray that today would be a day of strength and encouragement for your saints as we gather and hear you speak to us. May you stir us on to love and good works. We pray for those that do not know you. May you save them. May you give them new hearts. May you show them that there is a judgment that is coming, and may they flee that judgment to come in Christ Jesus. And we do pray in all things you would be glorified. Help us by your spirit to understand what is going on here. And we're thankful that you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So please never leave us nor forsake us now. Be with us as your word goes forth and as your church gathers. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the Bible often talks about how the Christian life is one of a constant battle. Yes, we have died and been raised with Christ Jesus. Yes, we have been justified by faith alone, but we are also being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And when we think about the doctrine of sanctification, there are two parts 
that we can uh, uh, glean, and uh, theologians have talked about considering this doctrine. And the two parts are mortification, putting to death the old man, putting to death sin, but also vivification, or growing unto the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting off the old man, we've put on the new man, and we seek to resemble and look like our Lord. Verses 5-11 through deal with the mortifying part of it, dealing with the remnants of the old man, dealing with our sins that we still struggle with. And then verses 12 through 17 deal with how we then ought to live positively. So 5 through 11, what we ought to put off, 12 through 17, what we ought to put on and what we have put on in the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the whole letter is all about walking in Christ. As you've received Christ, so continue to walk in him. And our Christian life is still one of walking by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, contrary to the teaching of the false teachers that were threatening the church there. They thought you were in by Christ, stay in by their own works. But Paul is saying the way in which we deal with the deeds of the flesh is in Christ. Not in the traditions of men, not in vain philosophy, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you've received him, so then walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 3 and the end of chapter 2, as we saw last time, begins to discuss what our resurrection life looks like. We have died to the old man. We've been raised with Christ. Now, therefore, put to death the sins of the old man and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, mercy, tenderness, holiness, etc. Now, the problem, I think, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 11 is clear. It is the remnants of that old man. Redeemed saints live in the tension. We are of the age to come, but we still live in this present evil age. We have the what's called the doctrine of remaining corruption. We still have sins we deal with. We still have struggles we deal with. And so uh, we must recognize that that is a very reality until we die or Christ comes back. That's why it's called sanctification. That's why sanctification is called the work of God's free grace. Justification is the act of God's free grace. Sanctification is our Christian life. How we seek to grow unto the image of Christ as God prepares us for heaven. We are being made more like our Savior. And the sins that Paul draws upon in these verses are sexual sins and social sins. There are more sins than that, but he draws upon sexual and social sins here, and both of them really have an order. All of them start with an inward desire that then proceeds to an outward action. And he wants us to kill that inward desire first before it becomes an outward action. And so even with all this, the doctrine of sanctification is not a command or the the commands in it are not just bare commands. We do so already redeemed in Christ We do so already have died and raised with Christ, and we do so knowing that we have the agent of the Holy Spirit to help us put to death the deeds of the flesh because we have put them to death in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we are in Christ helps us in our task that God has given to us in this world. And so that's what Paul is saying in verses 5 through 11. He's charging them. He's commanding them. He's uh, exhorting them to lay aside to put to death the sins of the old man because they are renewed in the new man. 
put to death the old sins, kill those old sins, and uh, because you are renewed in the new man. So the old versus the new comes up once again in this book uh, uh, that Paul writes to the, the Colossian church. And we'll look at this charge under two headings uh, this, this morning. It's really the two charges that we see in these verses. One, let us put to death our earthly members, verses 5 through 7. And secondly, let us lay aside the old man in verses 8 through 11. So put to death the earth, our earthly members, verses 5 through 7. And then let us lay aside the old man in verses 8 through 11. So let us put to death our earthly members in verses 5 through 7. And notice we see uh, the charge in verse 5, but it's built upon what came before. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And again, notice it's built upon what they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2.20 says, if you've died, just like he said in 2.11, you've been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, putting off the sins of the old flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we are in Christ. We have died with Christ because of what he has done for us. That is our status with him based upon our union. And then therefore, 3.1, you've been raised with Christ. And if you've been raised with Christ, seek those heavenly things. Your life is hidden in Christ. Then, therefore, here's what we must do as God's people. Verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth. Mortify the remnants of the old man. As John Owen says, kill sin before it kills you. Now, thankfully, we killed that sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I'm going to point out, and many of the old boys point out, uh, that we are to kill the old man in and by the Spirit. But also, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take steps to avoid sin in our lives by the power of the Spirit. I'll explain that when I get to the application part. But this, this whole section is application, right? Chapters 3 and 4, that's the application based upon the theology that we see in chapters 1 and Two. Now, there is some debate about how we take the command, whether it's a command or whether it is a truth. Uh, doesn't really matter, but I think the, the command aspect is in view. Verse 5, put to death. Verse 8, now set aside, put off the old, uh, all these things, because... Verse 10, here's what you are. So we're going to see the commands based upon the reasons, based upon who we are, but verse 5 very much is a command. Put to death. Kill. This is what the Christian life is. This is what the Christian is called to do day by day. It is one of warfare. That's why in Galatians 5, it's the spirit of the uh, the, the spirit of the flesh against the spirit of, uh, of God, uh, the works of the flesh against the works of the spirit. That is, there's this constant tension that we have. We are redeemed in Christ. We have to put on, and we are putting on uh, those fruits of the spirit, but we have to put to death the old things as well. And the meaning of earthly members here is a figurative way of speaking about those sins that still remain in the remnant of the old man. We have a new heart. We are redeemed in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit, but we still live in this present evil age. That's the eschatological tension. We are who we are in Christ, but we're still struggling with sins as we make our way to that celestial city. And so here's your Christian life. Put to death these things. 
Make every effort to put to death these sins. Make every effort to flee from them. Resist them. When the devil tempts and prowls around like a roaring lion, resist him. It has to be one of fight. It has to be one of zeal. It has to be one as we seek to put these things away. The Christian life is a one of free is one of freedom redeemed in Christ, but it's also one of war against the flesh. That's why Ryle says, watch, pray, fight. That's your Christian life. That's the key thing in your Christian service. Watch, pray, and fight. Now, thankfully, God gives us the strength that we need to do so, and he gives us some good things we can do uh, in that fight. And I'll get to that when we get to the application. But we must put these members off. And notice the sins he focuses on first. Sins of a sexual nature. Now, it's no surprise that sexual sins are rampant in our modern context, but they were rampant in the Greek, uh, Greco-Roman world as well. There is nothing new under the sun. Man fornicates. Man engages in wickedness. Man engages in lewdness. It's been a sin since the foundation of the world. And now, yes, comparatively, perhaps when I talked to some of the, of the more elderly generation, they say it wasn't as bad then as it is now. It's probably still bad in those times, but it wasn't as bad as it is now. And it is true. We have easier access to things that pollute, easier access to sexual sins. There was something about the external deterrent. We shouldn't deny the place of that. Like if you want to do something inappropriate and see something inappropriate, you had to walk somewhere. And as you walk somewhere, you might run into Aunt Ethel along the way, and that might freak you out and deter you from doing something you shouldn't. We don't have those barriers anymore, do we? I mean, it's just one click and there it is. See, we, uh, we need God's strength and God's aid, but it highlights that there is nothing new under the sun. And he talks about a whole array of these sins uh, that start with the external act, but start uh, uh, that uh, he starts with the external act, but it comes from something from within. So the two external works, fornication and uncleanness. Uh, the word for fornication is the word porneia, Unlawful sexual intercourse. Unlaw anything outside of the marriage bed, which is between one man and one woman, is considered sexual immorality. We do not discriminate. Anything outside the marriage bed, whether it's a wicked thought or a wicked deed, is a violation of the seventh commandment. Now, perhaps in view here, he has adultery, just run-of-the-mill adultery in view, a man cheating on his wife, a wife cheating on her husband, certainly the whole uh, gamut of what our sexual sins can be subsumed under this word, but he has just run-of-the-mill, everyday sexual sins in view here with the word fornication. Then he has other stuff in un with uncleanness, anything that is filthy or lewd. That is, perhaps an example would be like 1 Corinthians 5 and the man under discipline who had his father's wife. Remember Paul says even pagans don't like that? There are still sexual sins that are uh, promoted sometimes today that even pagans would understand is lewd and, un and unclean. So Paul has the whole gamut involved here. Anything, whether it's run-of-the-mill sins or whether it's something that is even more unsavory or filthy, in view here but whatever it is it is a sin whatever it is it's something uh, that a christian must put to death 
And what I, what's interesting is we're going to get to this more in verses six and seven. It's implied that A, this is what they struggled with, and B, they still struggle with some of these things. You see, God is a God of mercy and forgiveness, isn't he? That he forgives people of all sorts of sins and gives them strength to overcome them in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must remember that, brethren, in our sanctification, that Christ has A, died for us, but B, will give us all we need in our battle. Certainly, I'm not saying we're never going to fall. I'm not saying we're never going to sin, but Christ is with us, and Christ does forgive us, and Christ will help us in the battles we engage in. And we'll see some of that tonight with Jonah. What's interesting, I'm going to, a precursor, I don't want to give it all away, but you know what Jonah prays? I cried out to the Lord in my affliction, and he heard me. Now, where did his affliction come from, dear brethren? From his sins. His sins led to his affliction, and yet God still heard him and forgave him. You see, God's people still struggle with these sins, and we thankfully we can cry out to him, find forgiveness in him, and ask him to give us the strength we need in the difficult world in which we do live in. So there's the external acts, fornication, uncleanness, but also the inward desires. That's why Jesus says, if anyone looks upon a woman or a man with lustful intent, it is a sin. It violates the seventh commandment. It is an inward desire that then proceeds to an outward action. So passion here probably refers to that first motion. If we wish to kill outward sin, we must repress and suppress the inward desire as well. Anything uh, that is wicked that we do proceeds out of a wicked desire. And so we have this passion, this first motion, uh, uh, and then evil desire. Perhaps there could be some overlapping of the meaning just to drive home uh, the point. Passion, evil desire could have that same sort of idea of something inward that proceeds outward. But evil desire is opposite to what is good pursuing what is wicked and having your mind on what is wicked versus things that are good. See why Paul says, set your mind on the things that are above. Fill your mind with the word of God. Don't fill your mind with filthy things. Fill your mind with good things. We are very much affected by the things of this world, and we ought to fill our minds with good, uh, good things. So, Passion, evil desire proceeds out of that. In in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul actually does connect sanctification in our fight with sexual immorality. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, and not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. So we must put these things to uh, to death, and then notice the root cause of the matter, or the root of the matter. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, covetousness isn't just, I want my neighbor's house, and I want my neighbor's car. But the Bible also says covetousness is when you want your neighbor's wife, or your neighbor's husband, or anything that is not Yours And certainly the idea of sex, the sexual sin that is sexual desire is in view here with how the context unfolds. Notice what he calls it, idolatry. 
The first commandment, have no other gods before me, is idolatry. And the last commandment is also idolatry. Now, it's not so much in kind, but in similarity. It's not as though someone who engages in all in sexual acts and sexual sins is necessarily building up an idol, an actual literal idol, but it really is an idol, isn't it? Every sin we commit is a symptom of the disease of idolatry, love of anything, not God, <laughs> love of self, love of things that are not him, honoring ourselves rather than him. And this is Paul's point in Romans 1, isn't it? As he drives to deal with homosexuality, as he drives to deal with all sorts of vices that are there, what's the root cause? Man worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And Paul, in a more kind of concise way, says the same thing, uh, different context, but is saying a similar thing here as Christians ought to put to death these things. Don't engage in outward sexual acts, suppress inward sexual desires, and do not covet, which is idolatry. We ought not to do that. We ought to kill it, put it to death. Now, this is going to shock you what I'm about to say. I've never killed anyone before, like actually. Uh, certainly, I've been angry and mad. Certainly, that violates the sixth commandment. But I'd like to think if someone's going to kill someone, it's going to require a lot of energy and effort and work, right? So when you put to death the deeds of the flesh, it requires effort and energy and work, doesn't it? It requires us to fight against it day by day in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So put to death these things. And he gives us the reason why in verses six and seven. And it is certainly to provoke. It's certainly a, a way in which we can springboard and call upon the unbeliever, but it's meant to be a reminder for the believer of what we once were and what we were once under, verses six and seven. Because of these things, these sins, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. It's a sober reminder of what we deserve for all the sins that we commit. God is a righteous, perfect, holy God, and one sin against him deserves a righteous, holy wrath that should be poured out upon us. Thankfully, Christ bears the wrath of God upon himself in our stead and highlights all the more the wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's died for us and stood in our stead as the God man, but it shows what we deserve. It shows that uh, where we were without him, what they once were, the wrath of God, a day of judgment is impending. It is coming. It is on its way. And notice the quality of those who shall be punished, disobedient, but also, as Davenant says, unbelieving. Those who disobey can find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. Those who don't believe cannot find forgiveness, right? And notice, those who've disobeyed against God, who've sinned against God, who've worshipped themselves rather than God, the wrath of God is coming. God has delayed his judgment, but it is coming. And while there's still breath, there's still hope. If one is an unbeliever, they must forsake their idols, worthless idols, and turn to the true and living God. Flee the wrath to come in Christ by faith. 
And notice he says in verse 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. The believer, every believer once walked in a life of sin, right? And especially when you consider these Colossians, they engaged in these sorts of sins. And certainly we still, there's still struggle with that, putting to death those things, but it was something that once dominated their life. See, what he's trying to say here with the fact that we still have remaining corruption is that we don't have reigning corruption anymore in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. You have died to these things. Christ is your life. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you are a slave to righteousness in him. The sins listed were what controlled the lives of the Colossians, and it's what they can still struggle with, but it does not dominate there, nor ought to ought it to dominate our lives. They walked in it, as he says, they lived in it, they obeyed it and sought it with pleasure. In the Christian, we seek to walk in the light, we seek to walk in Christ, and when we stumble, it is something that we hate doing or ought to hate doing. And thankfully, the one of the ways in which Christ sanctifies us by his spirit is he sometimes shows us the remaining corruption within us, doesn't he? He shows us our proclivities and our sins, but he will help us kill those things. I'm not saying you're never going to be tempted. I'm not saying you're never going to sin. That's just ridiculousness. There needs to be a reality, uh, uh, a sober reality of the remnant and the remaining corruption in the present evil age. But our current life is with Christ. That's what he is saying. Here's your life in Christ. Here's the old man. Put to death these things in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Our life is bound up with Christ based on his finished work and the benefits that he gives us day by day, including sanctifying us day by day. Now, the application, I think, is very clear. Put to death earthly desires, not just sexual sins, all of our sins, <laughs> sins of omission, sins of commission, sins that we do do, sins that we don't do, or, or righteousness that we don't do, uh, well, the sins of not loving God as we ought, the sins of not loving man as we should. When you consider all the sins in the world, who could stand before God? except in the Lord Jesus Christ, who can forgive iniquity, but God alone. And so we, as God's people, are called to mortify our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yesterday in our theology, we talked about the Trinity. We talked about what are called the processions and the missions. I know I talked about that in Colossians 1. Uh, The processions are the eternal relations of origin when we consider the three persons The Father, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And this is where we see the mission of the Spirit, don't we? The Spirit makes us more like Christ, and he's poured out within us. He gives us all we need to resemble our Lord. That's why the Trinity is so very practical, isn't it? It's how the triune God saves. He saves in Christ by the Spirit. And the Spirit gives us all the benefits based on Christ. And one of those benefits is sanctification, our Christian life. And in our sanctification, this is where commandments can come 
in, right? If you are a Christian, I can charge you, the Bible charges you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. I'm not being moralistic or legalistic when I say that. It's what the Bible has called us to do. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Mortify your sin by the power of the Spirit. Now, Davenant gives us three ways. I've added another, but so there's going to be four things that we can do as the people of God. Now, first off, uh, the first thing he says is resist desires before they become outward sins. If you got an inward desire, repress that. Ask God, as soon as you do it, as soon as you have that thought, as soon as you have that uh, wicked image, just ask God for forgiveness. Wicked look, ask God for forgiveness right away. Deal with it right away before it becomes outward. Now, in the doctrine of sanctification, Davenant points out, it is the internal work of the Spirit, but it's the external, practical of the work, uh, work of the new man aided by the Spirit. That is, we resist by the spirit that is we uh and i will and the second one we cut off temptations and avoid occasions where we are tempted we can do that by the spirit if something causes you to sin avoid it that's what we are called to do that's what the proverbs say right the guy who struggles with adultery don't walk by where the adulteress is walk a completely different way so i kind of put one and two together but we resist the desires before they become outward sins davenant says this mortification he affects while he infuses himself that is the spirit into the human soul together with the gifts of graces by the efficacy of which the power and dominion of sin is mortified and overthrown. So it's the work of the spirit, but man does something by the spirit to put to death these things. So resist desires before they become outward and then cut off temptations and avoid occasions when we are tempted. When we know that, when we know our proclivities, that's a good thing that we ought to do. Now, I know last time I kind of pointed out different steps people can take, or I kind of made fun of steps people want to take with their uh, 10 ways on how to be a better husband, 10 ways on how to be a better Christian. I'm really not against steps. I just want to make sure we understand the first step. That is knowing who we are in Christ and knowing what Christ has done and living uh, by faith. So I'm not against them. We ought to avoid occasions of sin. We ought to avoid those times. We ought to avoid those things, but it must be grounded in our I identity and this leads then to the third one which is the use of the means put to death those things but don't neglect the means of your growth namely the word of god prayer and the sacraments you have a certain sin you struggle with come to church you have a certain sin that you're dealing with pray you have a certain trial that you're enduring or affliction that's caused by your sin Come and partake of the Lord's Supper. We should use all the means that God has given us for our growth. Sometimes in our modern context, and I'm not against meeting with people one-on-one and helping them one-on-one, but sometimes people want the one-on-one, but they don't want the means of grace. They don't want to come to church. They do not want to gather. They just want the pastor one-on-one. I got something to tell you. I'm happy to meet with people who need help. I'm not against that. I'm just caveating that before I'm about to say what I'm about to say. But the pastor is not your personal life coach. 
I'm really sorry to say that I've, I've seen that sometimes. Maybe I'm not the, am I the only one who's seen that? But sometimes people want the pastor to be their personal life coach and meet every week and tell me how to live my life. No, that's not my job. My job is to preach Christ, to preach the word that you might be then equipped to live your life. Yes, if there's a crisis. Yes, if you obviously need help, I'm there to help you. But you understand what I'm saying? Not to the neglect of the means of grace. And remember, too, Paul is going to say how you admonish one another by letting the word dwell in you richly. Remember, they didn't have personal Bibles, like physical Bibles, because they didn't have the money to have the Bibles or the means to mass produce them like we can today. The only place they got it was in church. They had to memorize it and remember it and pray it. But the main place they got it was in church. Now, obviously, if people are sick, I get all that. But you do yourself a disservice in your battle against the flesh if you don't make use of the means that God has given to you. So I'm not against steps, but we must start with the first steps, namely our identity in Christ and the means he's given us. And then we need to cut off and avoid those occasions where we are tempted. And then the last thing, I remember reading the catechism, the larger catechism, the first time. And one thing that struck me is that when those guys wrote the catechism and they talked about the Ten Commandments, it wasn't just things you don't do, but things you do do. Now, if there's something that you don't do that you, or something that you should not do or something that you struggle with, do the opposite of that. <laughs> What I mean is, if you look at the examples of anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but maybe rather than tearing someone down, you build them up. I mean, that's an option to help with your battles with tearing people down and being angry. And maybe if you get angry, maybe rather than saying, I shouldn't be angry, yeah, you shouldn't be angry, but maybe you should say, Lord, help me to see the blessings that you've given me and the the love that you've shown me, like, that that's legitimate as well. That's why I like what the catechism says. Think, duties you must do, but things you must avoid. And I think both are in view when it comes to our mortification. Again, putting on is just as important as putting off. So four things, resist when it's a desire, cut off temptations and avoid, use the means most importantly. And if there's a positive aspect, which there usually is, do the opposite or do the opposite of that very thing. But all of this we mortify by faith in Christ, who is our life. So all ready for a fight today and tomorrow and the next day, put to death uh, the deeds of the old members of the old man. So let us lay those, let us put to death those things, and then also let us lay aside the old man in verses eight and eleven. And notice the charge here in verses eight and nine. But now you but now you yourselves are to put off or lay aside all of these things. Lay aside your old life in Christ. Kill, push out of the way. And again, if you if you sin, there's mercy and forgiveness. We're going to talk about forgiveness when we get to verse 13. We're going to still sin, but there's forgiveness in Christ. Confess it and move on. We ought to lay it aside. Push it out of the way, not think about it anymore. Don't wallow, confess it, don't confess it, don't wallow. You're forgiven in Christ and move on. And notice the sins that we must put off. These are social sins. Now, all these sins will alienate, all these sins will divide, 
And all these sins can come up in the church. <laughs> That's implied here as well, isn't it? He's talking about a church, a body of believers that gather together. So it's not just don't be angry with your wife or your children, and you shouldn't be angry with your wife and your children in an ungodly way, but don't be angry with the people who you sit across the pew from or sit behind or uh, in front of. All those things are in view because when we're mean, malicious, angry, we will divide the church of Christ. We ought not to do that. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, build up one. And I'm not saying we can't rebuke and can't call out. That's why Paul does say rebuke with gentleness, lest you sin. We ought to do that. But what he is saying, uh, but these things are things that we can all struggle with. So put them aside, put to death those other ones, put aside uh, these very ones because they divide. And here he starts with the inward problem, <clears throat> anger, wrath, and malice. Now, the word for anger there is the same word that is used for wrath in verse 6. Uh, there's a difference between God's righteous justice and our wicked displeasure with the uh, places God has put us. Augustine says the anger of God is not the perturbation as God's not provoked, but not the perturbation of an excited mind, but he, uh, but he a tranquil constitution of righteous judgment. That is God's, all that to say is just God is righteous in his judgment because he is perfect righteousness. He cannot love sin. He must destroy and kill sin, which he does in Christ, or he will do in the person forever, righteously, and in a deserving way. Uh, but our sin, our anger, for the most part, is never righteous. It can be, so I shouldn't say never, it can be righteous, but most of the time it's not. You know what happens when we're angry? And Dav Davenant was great in this section. Davenant's been very good in Colossians. But he points out the fact that when we're angry, we make ourselves the judge and not God. God says, vengeance is mine. But when we're angry with someone in an unrighteous way, we put ourselves in that judgment seat rather than giving it up to God most high. It becomes idolatrous in that way, doesn't it? So anger, again, anger, there can be an overlapping of the inward and the outward, but it's this disposition. It's this displeasure uh, that we see with the language of anger here. Wrath, it's a different word than what we see in verse 6, but it's this intense state raging indignation it is this state that starts from within and, and 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 moves proceeds to without it starts with an inward hatred and moves then to words or deeds of hatred so wrath and anger then the word uh for malice there means one who's mean spirited or vicious some people are just vicious they're just out to get people they just want to make people feel bad they want to make people know that they're in pain and they want to make them bring them uh, usually because people are, you know, not happy with their life. And so they want to make everybody else feel unhappy as well. But it's, it starts with this mean spirit. It's displeasure. It's this anger, but it also is a viciousness towards others. People can be vicious. You and I can be vicious. You and I can be easily irritated and want to be mean to other people. Does nobody else struggle with that? I'm, I'm not trying to confess all my sins here, but I struggle with that too. We must ask God for forgiveness and put aside those things. But it starts with here. One writer says, 
Wrath is the boiling up of the blood around the heart, which arises from the kindling of resentment. Sixth commandment, seventh commandment, ninth commandment will be in view. But that sixth commandment aspect, all of them start with this inward desire that comes out in our outward manifestation. And notice the three ways it can be outward in verses 8 and 9. Blasphemy, filthy language, and lying. Now, the word blasphemy is used by denigrating anything that is God's. Uh, Blasphemy against God most high, that certainly is used many times in the Bible. But here, it's referring to denigrating or defaming humans. Or perhaps the opposite of building up, it's tearing them down. Bringing them down being rude, denigrating, defaming, any sort of that uh, speech that hurts. I know a lot of people say sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, words still hurt sometimes, right? And people can be blasphemous towards humans to denigrate, to revile, to defame and bring down an image bearer of God and sometimes a fellow saint. It's implied that some of these things happen in the church, right? That's why he's going to say forgive and forbear with one another. These things happen in the church of Jesus Christ. I have to understand that. You have to memorize that. We are redeemed saints, but still struggle with present sins, right? And that's why we can't, A, A, we shouldn't sin, but when someone sins against us, we must be quick to forgive and not have malice and ill will and denigrate them back. It's not this, you know, shot for shot sort of thing. This guy was mean to me, so I'm going to be mean to him next Sunday. This guy gave me the stink eye, and I'm going to give him the stink. That's not what we're supposed to do. But it's unfortunate that we're petty. And again, maybe I'm confessing my sins again, but I'm a petty person. And we need God to, I need God to work in my heart. And we all need God to work in our heart is is what uh, we need here. But blasphemy, denigrating, it's something we should not do. Davenant, he says, anger is a short madness. This one loses their temper, it's a short madness. So blasphemy is the outward uh, kind of manifestation of that. And then filthy language. This could be any sort of obscene speech. Um, again, there's perhaps a connection with both six or uh, verse five and verse six here, the sixth and seventh commandments, certainly the ninth commandments involved here too. speaking truth, not lying, um, certainly comes up in verse nine, but anything that is considered in poor taste, filthy talk, uh, perhaps is in view here, something that comes out of your mouth. So blasphemy. Uh, filthy talk, and then also lying to one another. Do not lie to one another. Portraying what is true, uh, portraying as true what is false in order to deceive. That's wrong. That's not right. Again, the implication is God's people still struggle with that. God's people still can do that, and we ought not to. And if we do that, we ought to ask God for mercy and forgiveness from him and from the person that we have wronged. And he's going to talk about that more uh, in verse 13. So verse 9, do not lie to one another. And then notice he gives us the reasons, the truth that grounds us. Because you have put off the old man with his deeds, and because you have put on the new man. 
why ought, uh, why ought you not to lie and why ought you to lay aside and why ought you to put to death because you've put off the old man and because you've put on the new man. You have these things are true of you. And if it is true of you, then we ought to live as though it is true of us. And certainly the language of stripping off here, it's clothing language. We've put off, we've taken off the old man, which is died in Adam. We got the two Adams involved here, old Adam and the new Adam, Adam and Christ. We have died with the old Adam. We've been spiritually circumcised. We've stripped off the old man. 2.11, his nature and his deeds. We've been given a new heart by the spirit. And we have put on, verse 10, the new man, which is Christ. And notice how we are renewed in knowledge. One of the key issues throughout this book is knowledge. Where is true knowledge? There's false knowledge and there is bad knowledge. There is uh, cloudiness concerning knowledge, but there is clarity concerning knowledge. And with the clarity comes from Jesus Christ, not vain philosophy, not, not tasting, not touching, not handling, but in Christ Jesus. So the emphasis here is on that knowledge. How do we bear fruit? By growing in the knowledge, Colossians 1, 9. We put on Christ. This is true. This comes up again in 3, 12. We are renewed in the knowledge of him. And as we know him, we then grow in him. And so he says, you've been renewed. The language of spiritual rebirth that comes. Uh, the, same, the word is also used in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. The outer man is decaying, but the inner man is renewed day by day. It's not that we just are renewed in Christ. We are, but we continually be renewed based on what Christ has done in him. And notice he says it's a renewed image. Now, I hope you had Genesis 1, 26 and 27 in your mind. And certainly there is a contrast between the old creation and the new creation. Just like we saw how Jesus is the Lord of old creation in Colossians 1 and the Lord of new creation. And what he is saying here is when we consider the image, every man is created in the image of God. Even after the fall, that image has been distorted, but the image is not lost. Rather than having knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, there is ignorance, there is unrighteousness, and there is um, um, uh, uh, unholiness. And so uh, we see that Christ is the image, the same form, the same substance, the son with the father, but man is not the same substance as God. Man was meant to imitate God by way of analogy. What did Adam not do? He did not imitate God, did he? He did not spread God's glory to the ends of the earth, but Adam brought sin into this world. Sin, misery, suffering, pain, unrighteousness, unholiness, and ignorance, didn't he? What does the last Adam do? And I think the idea here when he talks about the renewing, it's that we are renewed in the new Adam that we are a new creation image that has been restored, but also in a new creation way. We've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. We've been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. And if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that's why, as new creation people, we have true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And therefore, we ought to then what? Image our savior 
we ought to reflect our Savior. Everything we ought to do ought to be in line with our Savior. Because oh, He says, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. As Adam was to reflect God, so we are to reflect Christ. Paul elsewhere says in Romans 8 that we are growing unto the image of Christ, which is our sanctification, isn't it? Dying to the flesh and growing into the image of Christ our Lord. And then he closes in verse 11 by highlighting that all of salvation and our sanctification are of Christ, lest we think we do it ourselves. Even in Philippians 2, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. No, that's the command for us, work it out. But it is God who works in you, both to will and to do. Our wills are aligned and redeemed, and our wills ought to be aligned with God to do what is pleasing before him. But it comes from him. And because of the new creation, external privileges are no longer valid. What's interesting about verses 5 through 11 is we've spent a lot of time throughout the book dealing with the heretics, right? Their problems, their issues, their threats. But a lot of what we've seen here were the problems that the Colossians had before they were redeemed in Christ and the struggles that they may still have. But then he finally hits back at the heretics again in verse 11, that it doesn't matter whether one does not touch or does not taste or does not handle doesn't matter whether one is a Jew or a Greek or a slave or free or barbarian or Scythian. All is in Christ Jesus. You don't have to be saved by becoming a Jew. You don't have to be saved by becoming a Greek. Salvation comes in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, whether there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. Barbarian and Scythian probably refer to different barbarians, People you might not think would be saved, right? But God can save them. Scythians, I think we're in the south, barbarians in the north. That's probably why Scythian is there. And then slave nor free. Whether it doesn't matter based on ethnicity, ceremonial status, or societal status. Christ saves. Christ is all and in all. Christ is all our salvation. And Christ is in all based upon his redeeming work not because of ethnic, social, ceremonial distinctions, but in Christ Jesus. It's akin to what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That doesn't mean there aren't roles in the church. What it means is you don't have to be a male to be saved. You don't have to be a Jew to be saved. You don't have to be rich to be saved. Christ is all and in all. And you don't have to be rich to be sanctified by Christ either. (laughs) You don't have to be a Jew to be sanctified by Christ or Greek. Christ is all, is our salvation. And in all, he is our sanctification. He has brought us salvation and he works in us by the power of the spirit because he is gracious to save and not because of any external privilege. Now, the command, again, is probably very clear. Put off all of these things. But again, notice that we do it based upon the truth of our status, renewed in him. And I think one of the reasons we must continually fight and put it off is, A, we're commanded, and B, that we might not allow any sort of pollution to come in. I think Chrysostom 
kind of gives a good illustration of what the Christian life is like. Why is it if we're redeemed in Christ, does he command us to put off these things? Well, he talks about a statue. He says, as a man who has cleansed and polished a statue, which had been covered and corroded with dust and filth, it may truly be that it is cleansed and yet properly to direct it to be wiped every day. It is cleansed, but must be continually washed because such direction refers to that soiling which will adhere afresh if the statue be neglected. Our Christian walk, our feeding upon Christ, our being before, you know, a being in, in the presence of the Lord is a protection. It's a that we might not neglect these things, that filth may not grow. So the apostle truly said that the Colossians were dead to sin, yet wisely admonishes them to mortify daily the works of the flesh. Because this admonition refers to those impure desires, which will grow up afresh and prevail unless repressed by constant and diligent labor. That is why we must put to death and lay aside the deeds of the old man, lest corruption grow, lest we backslide. Now, again, if we backslide, there's mercy and forgiveness but let us not use that promise of forgiveness and renewal as an excuse to backslide and an excuse to sin. May we ever fight to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to put off and lay aside all these things that are said in verse 8. And thankfully, again, we do so renewed in Christ. One thing I love about what our confession does, and we're, we're about to close here, is our confession connects the doctrine of sanctification with the doctrine of regeneration. That regeneration is the work of God to take out a heart of stone and put in a new heart. And it's akin to what Paul says in Philippians 1.6, what God began to do in you, he will continue. And so I like what they say in paragraph one of chapter 13. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection are also farther sanctified. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And by the spirit, we are farther sanctified. The both go hand in hand. What we are in Christ by the spirit and what Christ does for us by the spirit and what we do by the power of Christ to put to death those things. Sanctification is through the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. An ever uh, uh, um, in continuing war until Christ comes back or we pass away. But brethren, as you struggle with sin, remember, you do so redeemed in Christ. Do so having put to death those things and have been raised with him. Therefore, Put to death these things as you wage your war day by day, using the means he has given to you. Now, if you're an unbeliever here today, a lot of these commands are not for you. <laughs> you cannot put these things off on your own. You cannot lay aside these things on your own. But there is a wrath that is coming. There is the wrath and judgment of God that is coming. And the only way to flee that is in Christ Jesus by faith. Flee the wrath to come. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved and you shall put to death those deeds, put to death and lay aside those sins, 
in him and in him only. You cannot do that on your own. He forgives. He is merciful. He is gracious. Believe upon him and you shall be saved. Well, let us pray. Our great God, thank you for your promises that you give to us in your word. Thank you for the identity of who we are in Christ Jesus, that we have uh, died to this world and been raised with Christ. And may we then, in our remaining uh, battles, in our sanctification, may we put to death sexual sins. May we put to death sexual desires. May we put to death any desire that proceeds from the heart. And may we also lay aside all these uh, commandments, all these um, vices uh, that come from and stem from our violation of your uh, sixth commandment. And we know that all of this is because of our remaining idolatry. Uh, We pray that you'd help us, keep us, protect us, watch over us. Thank you for that protection that you give to us day by day. Thank you for that forgiveness that you give to us day by day. And thank you that we can call upon you because of Christ and his finished work. So please forgive us. Please wash us afresh in the blood of Christ uh, for the wicked things that we have thought, the vile things that we have uh, put into our minds. Uh, But may we uh, be kind and gracious, and may we be chaste in the life in which you've called us to live. So we ask that any here today who do not know you, please uh, save their souls, give them new life, we pray. And thank you that you're the God who forgives all sorts of sins. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.